Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. Tonight, you're listening to episode 146, and we are covering the top five horror movies of 1973. Um, Something of a list, Frank. So, um, one big movie in horror we've never talked about before, um, and um, one we have, and another one that I think is, like, for me, is something i really like a lot and um kind of under the radar to a lot of people i think that you introduced me to a long time ago so i'm excited to talk about these and hear what you have to say yeah um so i always ask you this like you know and i don't know if you want to handle this when we talk about the movies maybe but like what's kind of going on in 73 i don't think we talked about it in 72 that much um hmm well so a lot of uh really good giallo coming out of italy um there's a lot more i don't know if mainstream focus on horror is the right way to put it but there's definitely um a wider range of horror that's being released and it's not just limited to uh like genre um like campy horror or anything like that it's there's you know a, a wider range i think of stuff being released um you have some movies that are not on this list that i think are pretty important that came out this year um mm-hmm. some that kind of skirt the the categorization of horror in some ways okay. or are movies that are dramatic movies with horror elements to them um specifically there's uh, don't look now mm-hmm. um fantastic nicholas rogue movie that's kind of a supernatural psychological like psychosexual thriller with a horror element to it um and then um like i said like just some really good giallo so you have a uh, uh, torso came out this year torso is a, a pretty good um like really it's again like we i always talk about it like the ridiculous italian um categorization of like psychological conditions or psychosis or whatever where it's Mm -hmm. like well he was like molested or anyway right um some other stuff that came out um there's an american giallo i think it's american called the bell from hell uh, which is another like it's kind of almost like a psycho ripoff, but um, not a, not a terrible movie. Um, entertaining enough, I, I thought about maybe talking about it, but I wanted to go in another direction. Mm-hmm. Um, Messiah of Evil, which is like a satanic um, horror movie that uh, pretty well regarded for that came out this year, um, and then some others on the other side. There's things like. Uh, psychomania was released this year which is a <sighs> demonic motorcycle gang okay horror movie uh which is pretty fun um and has like a witchcraft element to it so just pretty wide variety of stuff that's that's worth watching in this year um and then the five movies that we'll talk about um but again i think this is really If you discount Psycho as a horror movie, I think this is probably the first year 
since maybe the 1940s where horror is kind of like a mainstream genre in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and definitely where there's major studios like actively focusing on releasing horror movies uh, to the general public so so one quick follow-up so messiah of evil is worth watching yeah messiah evil is a good movie okay for forever there was no good um uh prints of it like all the transfers were i wouldn't they were really grainy like terrible transfers but you can find some good transfers of it now so yeah it's on prime i see i was just gonna add it real quick but um so why do you think like what's why is the reaction to the studios changing do you think is it just because it's they think it's profitable yeah so i mean we'll talk more in depth about this with one of the um one of the movies that's coming up on the list but there were other like things that were in print and um that were very successful that caused studios to be more open i think to green lighting things gotcha um and i don't know i think you know it's we've talked about it a lot it's like the the general change in the studio system kind of going away a little bit um and directors having more control over uh, the work that they were producing so more like what they were interested in um so again you have somebody like nicholas rogue who's a um pretty prominent indie director um at the time deciding to sort of make a horror movie and then um you know some other directors like looking more into horror as a viable genre um this is really the there's just several years now where you'll see pretty prominent horror movies um come out that doesn't really happen again until somewhat in the 80s but the 80s is more about exploitation than it is about like mm-hmm. i don't know artsy horror maybe or whatever you want however you want to say it right um and then not really again until like the late 2000s do you see like kind of that groundswell of um prominent directors or people that are actually respected uh making horror movies or critics viewing horror as a viable genre because mm-hmm. even here i mean you're still gonna see a lot of criticism of these movies um just in general where critics will not necessarily have like a positive view on the movies themselves and sort of look at them as as being kind of a waste or exploitive or whatever um whereas i would argue that there's a lot of horror movies from this time period that are definitely not exploitation and especially the top three on this list i don't think a single one of them would be considered necessarily exploitive i mean they're all very you know right well done and well considered like Mm -hmm. films so yeah Yeah. i guess i have a hard time contextualizing it but yeah we have talked about the business end of hollywood but yeah we've talked about it before with like the black exploitation movies and one of the crime podcasts i know now that you mentioned it early 70s about the studio systems kind of going away and more indie filmmaking coming in um so yeah that makes sense um also just the idea that like it's not some 
I mean, even even Hammer around this time, even though they're still just kind of like losing steam in a lot of ways because people are kind of losing interest in the traditional um, the stuff that you're not a huge fan of, like the sure. gothic, you know. I always want to call it like bodice ripping, but just the buttoned up like period piece traditional horror um and people are trying to i think have more like modern takes on what horror is and um and again i think a lot of that comes from stuff like psycho um and i think you can even look at somebody like ken russell having some influence there with the devils where it's like right you can make a movie that's artistically bold and has a lot of good ideas to it and not necessarily um you know have to conform to the the norms of what the the genre was considered for you know forever basically mm-hmm. so right oh that's a good segue so you wanted to talk about the <laughs> five and four movie together so um number five on your list is the satanic rights of dracula directed by alan gibson it stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. It has a 29% from critics, a 30% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. And then number four on your list is The Creeping Flesh, uh, directed by Fred Francis, also starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, with an 83% from critics and a 53% from audiences. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about these movies and um, why you want to pair them together like this? So I think these are both really good examples of what I was just talking about, like kind of the waning interest in um the traditional horror uh satanic rights of dracula is a more or less almost like a police procedural set against the idea of the the wealthiest and most powerful men of britain um looking to resurrect uh dracula or basically to enhance dracula's powers um so that he can sort of take over the world um so it's got it's almost like watching something like uh like day of the jackal but mm-hmm. with this completely absurd backdrop of this satanic cult that's turning women into vampires in order to and also trying to develop some kind of doomsday plague um some genetically modified version of the black plague uh so that dracula can sort of i mean it's really kind of a funny idea it's like dracula's just like fuck it like i'm tired of trying to you know like drain people's blood and take over the world from the shadows i'm just gonna kill everybody and then get some goddamn rest um and i'm gonna use these like wealthy assholes who are more concerned with their own immortality and power than they are with the rest of humanity um but the funny thing is is the way that it's filmed is again very procedural um there's just some ridiculous uh ideas or that these the people that are investigating uh, i guess whatever the case have uh, including just like waltzing up to the you know dracula's manor or whatever and kind of just like nosing around and even though one of their friends just got murdered there um I find it really charming, this movie. Uh, I've, it's a movie that I watched when I was relatively young. I mean, probably I got it on VHS at Woolworths for like $2 in maybe 93 or 92. I mean, I, I, I owned this movie on VHS for a really long time. 
and uh, I always really like the idea of it being set in um, modern England. So cars and the bad guys have this like cutting edge giant security system where they can they have alarms and they can like you know close doors and um <laughs> the, the gang that the bad guys employ um are dudes just wearing these like <laughs> these fur vests riding on motorcycles yeah. who are like the worst henchmen ever uh-huh. um but again it's just it's it's a charming movie um it stars uh both Cushing and Christopher Lee uh, Peter Cushing playing Van Helsing, basically, and Christopher Lee playing Dracula. Uh, one of, honestly, one of my less, one of my least favorite Christopher Lee Draculas. I think mm. um, I find him. It's because again, like I, I, I always think there's maybe like an element of humor that's supposed to be just sort of this world weary Dracula. It's kind of like I'm just tired of doing the same shit that i've been doing for you know hundreds of years i really just want to like kill all you fucks and just have that be that um but again you know it's it's not one of the greatest movies ever and um it's more or less this is like 100 the nostalgia pick i think on this list Mm -hmm. even though i have a huge amount of nostalgia for all five of these movies but I like it as a comparison to the other Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing movie, uh, the Freddie Francis directed um, Creeping Flesh, which is not at all like a traditional horror movie in the sense that it doesn't really involve what you would consider like like werewolves or zombies or vampires. Um, and honestly, by the end of the movie, it's possible that it's not even... Like you're just seeing the delusions of the Peter Cushing character mm-hmm. as an inmate in an asylum. Um, so the premise of Creeping Flesh is that uh, Peter Cushing's character is a doctor who's returned from a long um, excavation trip in, he's in Africa, I think, where he comes back. Um, and he's returned with, yeah, New Guinea, you're right, New Guinea. He's returned with this giant misshapen skeleton. Uh, that he thinks is the key to basically human evolution, um, but finds that when it gets wet, it starts to regrow the flesh around it. And he finds these um, like ancient myths from the area about these giants who are raised by the rain and who are evil. And um, he's got a daughter uh, that he's withheld the information that his wife was institutionalized with uh, um, being crazy, basically, um, and has recently died. Uh, his brother, uh, who's played by Christopher Lee, was the mm, I wanted to say manager, but that's not right. Like, like, like the director of this asylum where his wife was held, and they're both competing for this thing called the Richter Prize, which is this super prestigious prize awarded to the best. It's like a 10,000 pound prize awarded to the best progress made in science. So they're both competing for it. Um, Lee's experiments sort of sputter. Uh, So he steals the skeleton from Cushing so he can steal his research. Um, There's a framing device, sort of like the beginning of the movie and then maybe two thirds through the movie 
where Cushing is in what seems to be his laboratory talking to someone about um, what's happened. And then you find out that he's actually in the room in the asylum. Um, and again, it's, it's questionable whether he was, if, whether he's really Christopher Lee's brother, whether he's really the father of this girl, whether all of those things are just a delusion that he's had as he's been, um, maybe he's been in, in prison the entire time and he's just imagining all these things have happened. Uh, there's a part early on where he gets water on the finger of the skeleton and has to cut the finger off and puts it in a jar. And at the end of the movie, you see that he's also missing the same finger mm -hmm. on his hand. So it's, you know, maybe he considers himself to be evil and um, it was just something he did to himself, like in his imagination. So it's, um, it's a more interesting movie plot wise. Mm -hmm. It's a more complex storyline. Um, it's better performances, I think, by both Cushing and Lee and particularly Lee, uh, who's playing what I consider to be his best villain, which is the um, the bureaucratic villain, mostly mm -hmm. um, the guy that's using power and influence to do what he wants and to do bad things to people um, with his crazy mustache. And uh, it's actually very similar in tone to the bit role that he plays in um, Deadline or Deathline or whatever that was called, that movie that we watched um, yes. mm -hmm. last month. Yep. Uh, where it's just more about like um subtle menace and yeah just this like coldly like acerbic wit or whatever um but it's it's better directed i mean freddie francis is in my opinion the best director of these kind of movies from this time period yeah um, i actually hadn't looked francis up i didn't realize he was um Lynch's cinematographer on a number of movies. Um, it makes a lot of sense of why I thought this movie was so well filmed, though. Yeah, he's really good. Um, but again, still, it's it's very. They're filmed in a very stagey kind of way, mm -hmm. where it's a very traditional. The cinematography, the camera movement, all these, it's, it's very traditional. The storytelling is very straightforward. Even here where there's some element of uncertainty about, uh, I guess, like the true motivations and actuality of like the circumstances of the characters, um, it still feels very classic in the way that it's done. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but. I think that you're you see over the course of the next six or seven years, in particular the next like two or three years, and even within this year, you see a large, almost sea change of the way that people film horror and mm -hmm. this stuff that was really prevalent in the mid to late sixties, um, and some really good horror from that time too, from Hammer, from Amicus, um, from from Tygon. Tigon, whatever it kind of goes away and it becomes more experimental and more um, weird I guess horror like you get more it's less just like here's here's the villain here's the hero here's the circumstance and there's more gray area mm -hmm. um, and also one of the things that Creeping Flesh does that I think is really interesting is it doesn't let the protagonist win 
and right. it even calls into question was he ever the protagonist to begin with which is another thing that becomes kind of prevalent over the next decade which is the the bad ending horror mm-hmm. basically where it's no longer the good versus evil where good wins um right and again that's another thing with these next three movies that we're going to talk about is that's a very big part of each one of them is Mm -hmm. did anyone actually come out on top was there actually a victory over evil or can evil even be defeated and i'm i mean i'm not a historian but i wonder sometimes if that's not a reaction to kind of the end of the 60s and vietnam and just the general feeling in the country that like maybe this golden age is sort of no longer no longer in existence or maybe it never existed to begin with so sure yeah well i mean yeah the summer of love is over and you know the reality is kind of like creeping in i think and yeah i think i think you're probably pretty accurate on that and i also feel like i i think creeping creeping flesh would belong on this list regardless of Mm -hmm my my affection for from when i was a kid because i really think it's a well done interesting movie and i think there's a lot to be said for the fact that it does end on kind of a question um where you don't know really like it's it's basically left up to your own interpretation as to what the what had actually occurred in the story which i i love movies that end like that especially when they're done well um satanic rights of dracula would not be on this list if it was just by like the best movies i mean i probably would have put messiah of evil on here or maybe even don't look now um but yeah i think they're both like worth watching if you can find them for free um creeping flesh is on prime i think right it now is. yep mm-hmm. uh so it's 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 worth a watch yeah and, and Sat- especially Satanic rights of dracula is on tubi so especially for uh just for seeing lee and cushing like in their primes um, and especially in the creeping flesh, just both of those performances are really good. They are, and and I'll say that since I shit on Peter Cushing all the time and not understanding, like I think he's really good in um, the creeping flesh. So like it's, it's it's finally a performance where it's like, oh okay, yeah, that's a really good performance of that character. It's really interesting because he has this way of playing someone that's either emotionally damaged or socially awkward. Mm-hmm um in a way that both like engenders some compassion and like empathy for him and also is just incredibly infuriating mm-hmm. and it, it's funny because like ultimately you know i i think that cushing out of cushing lee and price who i think are the big three um horror actors of the late 60s and early 70s um, I definitely think that Peter Cushing is probably the best actor out of all three of those. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I feel like <clears throat> I feel like Price and Lee kind of rely more on overacting or being hammy than they do on nuance. Although I think Lee is fantastic in The Creeping Flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think that Peter Cushing, because he tends to get cast as the good guy, has to have a lot more nuance in his performances. Mm-hmm. So right yeah the creepy flesh was good i liked it overall um i even though it's that older style i i thought it was well filmed and i thought it was a unique and interesting story the only thing i would say is like i think injecting the evil into it 
the idea that like evil could be living was the only thing that I was like, why is this in here? Like, it's good enough if it's an ancient evil monster or an ancient monster, like, you know, that can regrow flesh or whatever. But um, your ending actually makes a lot more sense, though. Like, if you if you see it as an unreliable yeah. narrator and he is trying to remove the evil in some way, you know, like that actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 100% the reason evil is there is because whatever Peter Cushing's doctor did mm-hmm. to get put in the asylum is something that he regrets or kind of loathes himself for so that's he sees the evil in himself sure um yeah and the, and the one person obviously missing from it when you really think about it when, now that i'm thinking about it not you think about it but it's like what i'm thinking about now the one person missing that's like not represented is the wife character and the idea that the wife was away and died it's like you might be able to draw some conclusions there even of like maybe what really happened to put him there so yeah um yeah Yeah, i think um i think like like you said if you just watch it as a straight whatever like a straight story it's not nearly as interesting as if you kind of sort of have that different interpretation of it where it becomes a much more interesting film yeah I, I still I still really enjoyed like the like the stuff with the Christopher Lee character trying to undercut his brother and like those sure. kind of things. I mean it's like there's still some intrigue like in other ways other than the horror aspect of it, which I I thought it made it a more engaging movie. Like there was actually characterization and you know layered plot um to it. Yeah. With layered plot in Satanic Rights of Dracula is just ridiculous. Oh, it's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, it's it's fun. It's funny. I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much because I I want to spend a lot of time on these last three movies. Mm-hmm. But if you just watch Satanic Rites of Dracula almost as like a, like a dark comedy, it's a much more entertaining film than if you're trying to watch it as a straight horror movie. Yeah, there were times I I I, I laughed. Um, I and I never understood if I was supposed to be laughing or not, but I I, I certainly laughed at it sometimes. Um, yeah, me I, too. All right. Number three on your list is William Freakins, The Exorcist, stars Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Max Van Seagal, Lee J. Cobb, has 84% from critics, 87% from audiences. Um, I've been looking forward to talking about this movie just because it's like one of the big ones out there that we've never talked about. So um, for those that need a little bit of background, like you want to just tell us what the movie's about and, um, you know. So, based on, um, fuck, William Peter Blatty. Yeah, William Peter Blatty's um, novel, which was a supposed recounting um, of an actual exorcism that took place in the 40s. Um, The Exorcist is a movie about a young girl, uh, daughter of a prominent movie actress, who becomes possessed and basically has an exorcism performed on her by these two broken sort of like fallen priests um one guy who's at the end of his life and another guy who's kind of almost had a crisis of faith just because of the passing of his mother um really i mean like the the core of the movie is very simple but it's an incredibly complex um 
storytelling narrative that's used to get to, to that point. Uh, so it follows really four separate storylines for the first hour plus of the movie where you're looking at um, Damien Karras, uh, who's, what's his name, that actor's name? Uh, that is, uh, uh, yeah, I should have had Jason Miller, yeah. Yeah, so Jason Miller's uh, Damien Karras character, who's a priest, but he's the psycho- psychologist for the um, the church down in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Um, so he has to deal with the ner- neuroses and problems of all the other priests, um, who also feels a like, strong sense of guilt because... His elderly mother, who's ill and ailing, is living by herself, and he has to take a long subway ride into the city so he can go visit her in this kind of like slum house. Um, She ends up getting really sick, and he doesn't know about it in time, and she ends up passing away while he's not able to help her. Um, There's uh, Father Marin, who's the Max von Sydow character, who's actually the opening scene of the movie takes place in um wherever they are africa or whatever mm-hmm. um where he's uncovered this tomb kind of that has this statue in it of a demon um, that causes like dogs to go crazy and um, he's the only living priest in the area or around that's ever performed an exorcism so he's almost like a relic of a previous time before the church has kind of moved on to more modern medicine uh there's the alan bursting character um chris mcneil who's recently divorced single mother raising um reagan uh who's the linda blair character um reagan is this intelligent bright artistic girl uh, loves her mother they have a great relationship um so all these storylines come together and the thing that I love the most about this movie is that, and I don't know if it's really appreciated enough, but maybe it is, I don't know, because this movie is really well appreciated, but it's a very slow build to the point where Reagan starts exhibiting anything that can be defined as possession or like anything demonic. Mm-hmm. It's just like small things like noises in the house, things moving, um, just like a sense of like ominous dread sort of and they use that time like as they're building to the point where she starts to exhibit more and more like um extreme behavior to build the story of especially Damien Karras who um Miller's performance is just fantastic in this movie as this man who's at a crisis of faith and doesn't know how to sort of reconcile himself with the idea that there was nothing he could have done to have helped his mother because he puts all the blame on himself. Um, so eventually, uh, Reagan kind of like predicts doom for her mother's boyfriend um, and pisses on the floor and then um, is having what initially appears to be seizures, but basically her bed is like flopping all around and then starts to have scarification on like her face and arms and starts to curse and speak in a different voice and ultimately um 
there's a really in my opinion the most horrific scene in the movie when they're doing the procedure where they do the spinal tap on her i guess is what it mm-hmm. is or whatever it is they're doing in her brain where they're doing like the scan of her, her brain um where they it it's very much like a doesn't flinch it's like a real medical procedure that you're watching even though like obviously it wasn't really done to her but um so they go the route of trying modern medicine modern psychiatry nobody can figure out why these things are happening they keep getting increasingly worse um Karis is brought in kind of just to talk to her and um uh, chris mcneil who is not a religious person is sort of convinced that they're you know that the exorcism is a thing that might actually help her daughter um so by the time you get to the actual exorcism there's maybe what 30 minutes left in the movie i mean it's right. it's pretty much the end of the movie when Marin is brought in and when they go in and all the scenes that are i think probably the most infamous of this movie so the head rotating around the masturbation with the crucifix the power of christ compels you with the Mm -hmm. holy water you know the your mother sucks cocks in hell like all that Mm -hmm. stuff um is basically the end of this movie um and ultimately karis sacrifices himself to take the demon into himself and kind of bring it out of her and then you know end his own life by jumping out the window which is the famous exorcist stairs Mm -hmm. um so um it's a movie that I've never put on a list because it's one of those weird things where it's such a good movie and I've seen it so many times that I think I just kind of got bored with it. It's almost like the apocalypse now. Right. To me where it's mm-hmm. like, it's so good and I appreciate it so much. I just kind of lose interest in talking about it or watching it. Yeah, and also because I feel like, what is there to say? Almost right. I mean, like The Exorcist has been dissected and discussed for you know forty plus years now. But here's an interesting thing: because if you would have asked me, I don't know, six months ago, whatever, I would have told you that I there's nothing you can say about The Exorcist, and it's something that everyone's seen. So we were talking about the podcast today at work. And I was saying that, you know, when I, cause I, I, I just watched it tonight. It was the last one I had to watch and I'd put it off all week. Hmm. Um, I was saying, yeah, I'm going to go home and watch the exorcist for the podcast tonight. Mm-hmm. And this lady at work, who's very religious, very Christian was like, oh, you could never pay me to watch that movie. I will never watch that movie. And I thought it was, I thought that's actually pretty awesome that in 2022, mm-hmm. cause I consider I mean, there's some shocking things in this movie when you see it for the first time. Right. But ultimately, there's not really anything overtly gory or it's it's, it's very tame by the standards of even stuff that would come like a few years after it. Sure. So it's interesting that it still has such an effect in terms of its it's notoriety or it's like legend almost that there's people today that still feel like I can't watch that movie. And I was talking to my mom about it this week because they saw the exorcist in the theater and Mm. it made her physically ill to go see it. Like Mm. she had to leave the theater Mm -hmm. while she was watching it because it was just so horrifying to her. And I think it's really, I think it was a couple things. So I, I honestly feel like 
there's the element that it's a child that this is happening to sure. that really bothers um, a lot of people. And it's the fact that it's a very, because there's no condemnation of the Catholic Church here. Like you have exorcism movies. I mean, there's exorcism movies all the time, but you have them where it comes out where it's the church has failed or the church is out of touch or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's not what happens here. It's that evil is sometimes too big for any one man to combat like that there's a lot of sacrifice that has to go into even just like stopping evil momentarily and you know Karis has to sacrifice his life and Marin has a heart attack and dies like during, mm -hmm. during the exorcism so I think that people when you look at it like it's not a clean cut you know triumph over evil thing and it really is you know i mean the demon says that it's the devil but it's you know it's a demon and it's sort of identified as such like i think it was really difficult for people to take like even now from a traditional standpoint of like like a modern christian or someone who has like a strong faith to watch a movie where like all that faith is called into question really in a lot of mm -hmm. ways or the effectiveness mm -hmm. of it um because there's a point where you even think that the stuff with the holy water and everything is just the demon like overacting in order to like kind of lull them into a false sense of security right so i find that really interesting and again i found it like an interesting reaction um that yeah. this woman you know in the modern age is still like unwilling to watch this movie um again i think there's a lot of really fantastic um subtle touches in this movie that kind of build that sense of dread um the noises in the attic you know the there's sounds that are kind of subtly placed in the movie um the subtle glimpses of uh, the pazuzu face um right and then later like the layering of that like on top of the images so not that it's, it's like subliminal but it's nearly subliminal where it's like really fast and you kind of have to be paying attention to see it but those small things that just build um where it allows you to be a skeptic in a lot of ways too until you just can't be a skeptic anymore and it kind of like helps you to empathize with the chris mcneil character and also the fact that it's you know she's played really well that you know ellen burston does just this really great job of making this character who's you know could easily have been a caricature or um just this wealthy woman who doesn't care about her daughter and doesn't see mm -hmm. these things happening to making her like a really caring loving mother whose ultimate goal is just to make sure that her daughter is safe and and comfortable and um ultimately like to save her daughter and i think that i think that just gives you a it, it just lends like an element of humanity to the movie um and elevates sort of the storytelling and the movie itself to make it where you know it's something greater than like I, don't, I, don't, I hate to say just a horror movie but there's a reason why it's endured you know for 40 plus years and mm -hmm. is considered by some people to be the greatest horror movie ever made so yeah not uh, not this person but i really like it a lot yeah it's 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 really good it's a really good movie um 
Emmy Freakin's an excellent director, and I actually didn't look up to see who his cinematographer was. I think it was, um, oh yeah, he did French Connection with him and Network and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, because like there's so many iconic shots in this movie that not only for the scene itself but the shot itself is well known to moviegoers sure. and uh but i re-watching it again it's like i always forget i think the first time i saw this i saw it on television uh when i was when i was younger and i missed the opening like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or maybe even uh maybe even half hour who knows um because it is a slow building movie so i had never originally seen that Iraq scene in the beginning um where the Pazuzu statue is unveiled and so I always forget about it but it's like it's it's something watching it this time where it's like it's such a brilliant opening because the way it's filmed inspires such paranoia and just kind of this weird sense of dread throughout the entire scene like with the people all the people the what the, the the Iraqis like staring at him in the street and increasing this sense of like paranoia the dogs fighting yeah. um you know and it's like it just it gives you this like undercurrent and then by cutting to the story that the real story of the movie with Reagan it kind of sets you up and then allows this kind of slow burn where you're already kind of set up for something is going to happen and you're just waiting for that thing to happen and i actually think it draws you into the movie more by establishing an unknown threat in those first like 10 minutes rather yeah. than just starting the story in washington with reagan like um and her mother i i think it's a really brilliant opening that like doesn't probably get talked about enough um to really pull you into that movie in some ways uh but yeah uh great movie i find i did research more on the production history of it and i found some of that stuff really interesting about what ifs uh kubrick was offered this movie and turned right. it down um which i find interesting nicholson was up for the Karis role at one point um brando uh i think it was Blatty that wanted him to be um Marin at one point and um uh Friedkin said this is not going to be a Marlon Brando movie right right yeah. right, right um and then it's like your girl like Audrey Hepburn playing Chris like there there's so many like what ifs with all of this but it ends up just being this like kind of perfectly cast thing in the end because all of these people come in and just do the exact right job that they're supposed to do in this movie um that holds up 50 years later I mean yeah it's crazy it's definitely like, a movie that you i don't think you can imagine it being cast any other way mm -hmm. um just because it all works so well yeah um and the interesting thing is that the character of um uh william kinderman the lieutenant that's sort of investigating uh the death of the, the boyfriend the director um is the recurring character that is played by uh, George C. Scott later mm -hmm. in Exorcist 3, um, but uses the same character and his friendship with uh, Damien Karras, um, which comes back into play in that movie as well. So, right. 
Right. But yeah, if I mean, I don't, I can't imagine that anyone who loves horror has not seen The Exorcist. But if you've never seen it, or if it's been, you know, 10, 15 years like it was for me, it's it's really refreshing. I think to watch it again, and just really shows you what a great job that uh, Friedkin did with directing this movie. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the most important horror films ever made, just from the standpoint of legitimizing sure horror from a box office standpoint where this movie was initially released on i think like 20 some screens and the studio had no confidence in it and then through word of mouth it became this phenomenon where you know people were claiming it gave them miscarriages and heart attacks Mm -hmm. and you know just yeah really really important you know seminal horror movie that definitely deserves to be discussed and i think like revisited from time to time so um i was initially hesitant to put this on the list because again like we talked about at the opening of you know the segment that what are you going to say about it but i'm really glad that i did really enjoyed watching it again yeah um no it's it's um it's crazy through time like that it's like gross like what did i see i think it was like 1.8 billion like through franchising and properties and like all that kind of stuff like over time um it's and it was the most successful horror movie for forever i something recently and when i say recently i mean like in the past 20 years knocked it off i can't remember that factoid i did i did run across that at some point when i was looking at things but um but uh it was it in 2017 yeah that's right. and that's that's, that's right. also unadjusted for inflation so what does that tell you about sure sure like because if you adjust it up for inflation i'm sure that it's by it surpasses it but you know a movie released in 1973 grossed so much money that no other horror r-rated horror movie grossed that much right you know for 30 plus years mm-hmm. yeah no it's, it's it's pretty wild um shit yeah 40 because years, 40 shit, plus years. yeah because um I lost it. Uh, ah, damn it! I can't find it now. But um, yeah, because like I was just looking at like it chapter two here, and like the box office for it is like four seventy three, and like the box office for Exorcist is like four forty one. Like, and that's yeah. yeah, like you said, like not adjusted. I mean, yeah, it's 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 absolutely ridiculous how much money that movie made. Crazy time, yeah. All right. Um. So this is interesting discussion here so uh, number two on your list is the legend of hell house directed by john yu it stars pamela franklin roddy mcdowell clive ravel uh and gail honeycutt has a 62 percent from critics and a 56 percent from audiences um so you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and um as you tell us like you know your review of it could you kind of contextualize of like how you justify putting this ahead of um because i know you struggled a little bit with ordering this list in some ways like you know what what makes you put it ahead of um the exorcist on this list in your mind so based on richard matheson's novel um hell house uh follows a group of a physicist um physical medium and a mental medium and the physicist's wife who are sent to look for survival after death in the most haunted house in the world, which is this place called the Belasco house. 
um, which was owned by this man who was incredibly rich and used his wealth to basically fill his home with whatever depravity he could, um, which caused lasting like psychic resonance and ghosts and hauntings or whatever. So these four people are sent in for a week to kind of either prove or disprove survival after death. Um, so from the outset, some things start to happen. Um, the Clive Ravel character, who's the, um, the physicist is skeptical that there's any such thing as surviving personalities, basically is what they call them. Um, the Florence Tanner, that's the Pamela Franklin character, the medium is super convinced that there's definitely surviving personalities and that she speaks to them. Um, the best character in the movie is Roddy McDowell's uh, Ben Fisher, mm -hmm. who is the only surviving member of the first expedition to the house 25 years prior, um, who refuses to use the psychic powers in the house. He's just trying to get through and not get destroyed um, because it basically broke him the time before. So things escalate. Uh, they start to witness things that the doctor kind of dismisses. Um, there's some attacks that the doctor thinks are being caused by the um, Florence Tanner woman to sort of prove her own point because they have competing mindsets as to whether or not, you know, there's anything after death or whether it's just energy. Um, it all goes to shit eventually uh florence tanner dies um realizing her like she thinks there's the spirit of the son of belasco is like crying for help to be released from the house and she ends up paying for that mistake with her life um he ends up clive Ravel's character ends up getting killed um by the house too um he has a machine that's supposed to cleanse all the resonant energy from the house that ends up blowing up on him and killing him and it's finally Roddy McDowell's Fisher character who figures out the secret of the house and ends up saving himself and um, the doctor's wife uh, and basically eliminating the evil from the house <clears throat> so I put it on the list because I like it like it better than The Exorcist and I don't know that you can argue it's a better movie I think that's kind of an impossible argument to make but i think a lot of the questions that it raises are more interesting in 2022 like in the modern day than the questions of the exorcist because the exorcist just comes down for as brilliant of a movie as it is it's it's a movie about faith and it's a movie about i mean more or less like a sort of straight retelling of this actual you know possession that happened whereas hell house is pure fiction but hell house is questioning is there such a thing as a person surviving after death to be able to influence the world? Or is it just a scientific phenomenon that's just not understood yet, but can still be controlled? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think Q does a great job of filming this movie with, with the voice of a skeptic in the way that the narrative is presented, but with the eye of a believer, like there's never a moment in that, in the movie once they get into the house where you as the viewer have any doubt that something's happening in that house like the way that it's filmed mm -hmm. is always showing you sort of like one step beyond 
what the characters can see, but the characters are still espousing in some ways this wrong-minded sort of conception of what what is a ghost? Like, what is a surviving mm-hmm. personality? What is a spirit? Like, what is energy? And I think it's just amazingly shot where <coughs> you never see anything that could be there's one scene in the movie two scenes in the movie one where you see a shadowy figure inside a a shower that's running and one where you see a shadow that's being cast on the wall by the statue and both of those things can even be put down to maybe hallucination or suggestion or whatever um but they don't show you any ghosts there's no like histrionic like wailing banshees or anything it's all just things that are happening within the mind and the view of the camera and the characters and i think it's a really brilliant way that it still builds this sense of like mounting dread mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this incredible sense of mystery within like what's happening to these people and is asking these really difficult questions and not necessarily answering those questions um to the point where at the end of the movie when you know when ben ben fisher figures out like kind of what's happening um the first time you see it like before you know i guess like what the what the story entails it really does like you feel like you're figuring it out with them and it's a it's a really great scene and a really great performance by by mcdowell in that in that role mm-hmm. mm, sorry i need to get a drink them oh my allergies are awful <coughs> But yeah, again, just this this brilliant way of showing you one thing and saying another thing and letting you just eventually get to the point where those two things kind of converge and the narrative of the movie is matching the visuals of the movie. And um, I think it's an interesting look at at sexuality and vice and um, in some ways, I think it's kind of a some outdated ideas of like what constitutes sin, maybe or debauchery. Sure. Um, but you know, they talk about like bestiality in the house, necrophilia in the house, um, just all these terrible things that happened to people that were there as guests of Belasco, and really build Emmerich Belasco as this monumental villain without ever having him appear in the film until the last, you know, five minutes. And even then he's nothing but a, you know, a corpse basically. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I love the way it's filmed. Um, I love Graham Ravel's characterization of this guy that refuses to believe that he could be wrong. Um, going up against uh the florence tanner character who is the same but just on the opposite end of the spectrum like refusing to admit that she could be wrong right um and ultimately it's that stubbornness from both ends of the spectrum that costs these two people their lives and it's the you know the most the pragmatism of ben fisher who knows like what the cost is of underestimating the forces in that house that ends up being the one that saves the day so yeah just a really really great movie yeah no it's a great reading of that movie um 
that you just gave there i yeah i just you you showed this to me like 15 15 so years ago yeah uh you had me watch it and i was really taken with this movie and it's probably one of my favorite horror movies like it's like somewhere in like that top 10 top 15 and i i I think it was circumstantial i think it was because like i was like you know always like having on fucking uh ghost hunters and shit in the background and stuff like that um when i you know like around that time period um as i was doing stuff like schoolwork and stuff like that and uh you had me watch this and it's like same way i was i'm always intrigued with the changeling is this idea of investigating paranormal stuff that's set way before the idea of paranormal investigation became like a mainstream thing and i like the the idea of bringing all of these different people together the, the the medium like the scientists you know like you know to to investigate like can this exist and so I was really intrigued by that idea, but it's like watching it, I think it's the third time I've seen it, like watching it again, this is like, to me, like one of those like perfect horror movies in the way that it's paced because it's really for the first 25 minutes, it's all suggestion. Right. And, and then it just, but it, it but it doesn't go haywire after 25 minutes. It's still just, you know, kind of chugging along slowly and it's like things actually start to physically manifest themselves then at that point and it's like you know and then it gets a little crazier and a little crazier and a little crazier and then it reaches a breaking point where all the characters have to react to what's going on and then it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and um that's what's effective to me is that kind of i always like the slow bill more than anything else yeah but slow build some slow builds can be too slow sometimes you know so it's like find this perfect pacing and i think this is a movie that really does has has an intriguing idea behind it and finds this perfect pacing and yeah roddy mcdowell like is just phenomenal i think in this movie like i think he like uh, the other actors are fine they're good like you know but i, I think roddy mcdowell just kind of like owns so much of this movie and like every scene that he's in like he just you know kind of commands a presence um and part of that's the story i think in the way they shoot him at times and stuff like that and what reactions they capture from him but i but i i think he just like nails the role and really provides that central figure that you can respect and kind of root for throughout um every time i every time i watch it though it's like the ending is just it's like it's good as the movie is as much as i love it like you know the ending is like a six out of ten to me like the last like 10 minutes or so i guess maybe of the movie or something like that um where it just kind of feels like the the revelation about the prosthetic legs and like all that kind of stuff just feels like this like weird little like almost like let down to me just 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 a little bit just a little bit um as much as I love this movie and I, I rate it so high, like that, that the ending always just feels just a tiny bit flat to me. The interesting thing about that is that it's, it's a really great adaptation of, of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big part of the novel is this idea that this man was considered. And the book has a lot more manifestation things that happen where um, the details, a lot more of the backstory of Belasco and the stuff that happened in the house. Um where it was about him being this guy that was had like hidden his past and nothing was known about him and it was because he was so um 
just so self-conscious about his height and his stature and he basically built himself into being a bigger man than he actually was um so part of it i i think part of my and i completely see what you're saying because it's a lot of really dubious jumps in logic that happened with mcdowell like oh the cross fell on their legs he hated his legs right (laughs) right yes right right um but because i love the movie so much like up to that point i can really kind of suspend my disbelief Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. um i know i i i I think the positives of this movie far outweigh like those little negatives and it's just a really like super enjoyable movie to watch really well performed yes and to your point like it it does like there is an escalation but there's the little like blowing of the wind when something's mentioned or the way that they film and one of the things i think that 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 hugh does that's brilliant is when he films mcdowell he always does it from an angle where those the lenses of his glasses just exaggerate him to be this like wide-eyed mm-hmm. almost innocent like little boy still and it's it's just really within that character where he then eventually kind of like gains that strength at the end to sort of beat Belasco at his own game. I think it's, um, I think it's just pretty brilliant, like visually, like as a narrative. Um, I think underrated too is, uh, Gail Honeycutt as, um, Ann Barrett, the wife of the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, just when, so she gets possessed a couple of times sort of by the spirit in the house. Um, and I think that her performances, like, when she's possessed or really um, really well done and definitely kind of like were surprising to me at first how she comes across and is just able to be like this almost like stayed like typical british wife um stiff upper lip you know brit and then just this like lascivious like lewd almost like monster in the the span of like a couple of minutes it's it's a really good performance so yeah no it is it is absolutely can i quickly ask you about um about you um so i'm familiar with um i'm familiar with like like the things he does for disney like um escape and return to witch mountain and uh black arrow and that kind of stuff but um some of his horror movies on here like there's only one that i'm familiar with but like watcher in the woods um the incubus. oh yeah that's a good movie oh Are they let's go ahead incubus sorry. is yeah they're they're both watching worth watching um incubus is free somewhere like basically all the time so okay um twins of evil is a decent movie uh i actually think dirty mary crazy larry is a decent movie mm-hmm. um that's a crime car chase movie um yeah i'm surprised you've never seen watcher in the woods i actually i'm looking it up to see if i have um it's a it's a ghost movie it's based on a ya novel from the 70s um good movie though i like it I, I saw a still shot and it's like, oh man, did I see that when I was a kid? And it's possible. Um, it's possible that I saw it. It's not available anywhere. Uh, yeah, the other one, Incubus, is available on Tubi. Um, 
and then don't you like american gothic too i made you guys watch american gothic with me i think didn't i um you made me watch you made me watch american gothic i think during that time period 15 years ago the same oh time maybe i made I ryan watch american gothic yeah the one where they go to the island and mm-hmm. yeah yeah i like yeah. it yeah I I really enjoy American Gothic. Yeah, because I think I was surprised a couple years ago when you didn't have it on your '88 list or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I think I forgot. <laughs> That's a list someday. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Legend of Hell House. Though, if you if, if somebody's never seen it, like I that's something i always recommend is Legend of Hell House if they're open to like older horror because I think it still kind of holds up pretty well. Um, agreed i had a a really honestly i had a really good time watching all five of the movies on this list but i did really enjoy watching um hell house yeah yeah same here um usually whenever you're watching movies like i can it's a thing where it's like usually i'm doing something else to some degree too and um like i if, if i've seen it number of times and um i can tell by like almost like how much i'm into the movie by like i just sit down and just start watching it um and hell house like grabbed me within like five minutes it's like i just put the controller down or whatever the hell else i was doing and just and just watch the movie such a Uh, such a great setup too and the fact of like it gives you every bit of information you need to understand that movie mm -hmm. In a very quick, specific way, and then just get you into the movie. Like, there's no like fucking around with anything. And where I love that in The Exorcist, like, I think that's really important in The Exorcist. I like it just the opposite here, where it's just like, here's the setup, here's where you're going, and then just get them in that fucking house and let shit start happening to them. Yeah, it is a really interesting comparison. You're absolutely right. Like, in terms of the two movies and like the, the, the exposition and the setup, where it's like, the there's very little exposition in the 10 minutes setting up the exorcist that's like okay there's a pazuzu statue and there's this guy who's obviously a priest who like you know maybe uh, is it even obvious that he's a priest i can't remember like mm-hmm. they call him father a couple they do times call, okay so yeah. but it's like not nothing's actually established in terms of backstory like whatsoever you get no exposition the real story doesn't start until you get to dc right. um but i think it does such a fantastic job of you know building a, a mood um to it and, and and an underlying tension that of what's to come where this does just a really good job of providing you everything you need in those like first like 10 minutes in terms of the characters in terms of like you know what the plot is and you know the potential threat of the entire thing um and yeah i mean it's um it's a it's a really interesting study and just like two different ways you can you know go ahead and like start a movie um that is pretty fascinating yeah um all right so number one on your list is a movie that we have talked about previously um years ago now at this point uh which is the wicker man directed by robin hardy it stars edward woodard uh christopher lee and Britt eklund has an 88 percent from critics and an 82 percent from audiences you want to tell us just a little about this movie and um why it's number one on the list what list was this on i'll do research on that because i failed and did not look that up i'll find out though you didn't mention um ingrid pitt by the way which i think should have mentioned one of the actors in the movie um Wicker Man is the story of uh, 
the Woodard, um, Edward Woodard's character, who is a British detective who's been summoned via mysterious letter to Summer Isle. <coughs> this small, like, independent island um, off the, I guess, British words in sky. Anyway, somewhere up there in those fucking islands of Great Britain. Um, mm-hmm. Under the auspices that a young girl has gone missing and has not been seen for a year, and they want to find out where she is. So he goes to this island, um, gets a frosty reception where people basically at every turn are denying that they know anything and kind of giving them the cold shoulder or treating them with a measure of um, kind of disrespect and sort of like mockery almost. Um, He's a very straightforward, straight-laced, traditionalist, um, a Christian who doesn't believe in having sex before marriage. Um, He's appalled at the sort of loose morals as he sees it on the island where people are more free. It's a very like commune-esque hippie environment where it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of like really respects for the bonds of matrimony or the sanctity of like you know the your body is a temple type thing people are very free about like how they love each other and um actually one of the really brilliant things i think about this movie is the way that it's filmed where uh woodard's um sergeant howie will be in the foreground like looking disgusted or confused or annoyed and just slightly out of focus you can see the eyes and the faces of the townspeople regarding him when he's not looking at them and it really builds like this strong element of unease like super early on um there's one shot in particular when so he goes to the tavern where he's renting a room um and the innkeeper is there and a lot of the men in the village are there drinking and the innkeeper's daughter um is there as well and she's um attractive young blonde and all the men in the bar start to sing this lewd um shanty almost about the what is it the landlord's daughter is what they call it yes um basically about how like everybody's fucked her and she'll basically fuck everybody and it's really nice to fuck her Mm -hmm. like her best her best parts between her left toe and her right toe um and you know sergeant howie is getting increasingly like disgusted as he's like because he's kind of slow on the uptake a little bit like and he's realizing like what they're saying and there's just this shot over his shoulder where you can see the father like kind of leaning back and like he just has the most almost like nakedly sardonic like lustful look on his face like looking at sergeant howie and it's it's just perfectly framed and really well done and honestly um sets the tone i think from that point on so he thinks he's doing this investigation but basically he's being led by all these town people into um doing what they want um ultimately 
I don't know if we need to really like, describe this movie as much as I am, but <laughs> ultimately the townspeople are using him as a sacrifice in an effort to offer him up so that they can get um, a good harvest again, because the previous year their harvest was bad um, and they blame that on the fact that there was no sacrifice. And so he's their sacrifice. So the whole time they're tempting him basically with like carnal um carnal sin and um you know uh, like gluttonous sin and all these things and he's very very good christian you know staying away from like any of that temptation even though he's super tempted by the bradeklin dancing naked and singing um about wanting to f him in her room um but that's the whole thing is that like it's it's that pembleton line that virtue isn't virtue unless it slams up against vice and right. i think that's the big point of the movie is that you know they needed to prove that he was really like this pure man before they offered him so that the sacrifice had meaning right and there's never any real discussion about whether or not if what they believe is true works like they never talk about you know is it actually possible that the sacrifices will help like bring back the prosperity or anything? There's a really interesting argument between um, the Christopher Lee character, uh, Lord Summerisle and Sergeant Howie about whether like, how is what they believe all that much different than what the Christians believe? It's just that Christianity is more prevalent so that, you know, he's willing to accept that, but not basically the same mythology they have on this Island. Um, as being factual so mm -hmm. a lot of really good conversation about through like subtle context about the meaning of spiritualism the meaning of religion um really it's kind of calls into question the spread of christianity and how much different is you know the world if it's another religion that happened to spread at that time because it has you know again they're looking at like the sacrifices and the different like icons they have that go along with this harvest festival um that takes place on may day may 1st um and it's not that much different than you know the things that we do at easter or christmas or whatever um hugely influential movie uh, most recently in um seen in in midsummer which right. is a complete like homage to, to this movie um, but also has inspired, I think, a lot of other uh, folk horror movies over the over the decades. Um, really established the creepy cult horror genre um, perfectly, like sets it up where you just get little bits and pieces and you never really learn the true mythology of the island. They just give you small bits of it um, and only through the lens of what these people are telling um, Sergeant Howie just to kind of manipulate him into doing what they want which is you know put himself in a position where he willingly offers himself to be in this place so they can sacrifice him um but great performances really well filmed beautiful setting um i think very surprising the first time you see it and again like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast um, and really, with all three of these movies, a movie where you can't really say that good prevails at all. Right. 
Um, so I want to talk about something, and you probably want to talk about this too, because you asked me this question. Is Sergeant Howie a protagonist? Like, is he the hero of this movie? I think, is that how you phrased it when you asked me the other night? How exactly I think, did I you think when, the other night when I asked you that, I think I asked you who you who you sympathize with now compared to whether that's changed or not over time. So I think I sympathize more with Sergeant Howie now. Mm. And I'll tell you this, and you you brought up the fact that he's kind of a prick in the movie. Like the he's just, prick, yeah. Yeah, just, but here's the thing. So he's a guy who was raised a very specific way, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's raised to be a good member of the Church of England, pious Christian man who believes in the law. Going to a place under the auspices that he's investigating a crime. Like he's just doing his job. Mm -hmm. And at every turn, he's lied to, he's mocked. He's led to believe that an 11-year-old girl was murdered, possibly for some kind of pagan cult sacrifice he's tormented by people you know showing their bodies to him and kind of trying to tempt him to you know sort of break his vow of celibacy so he gets increasingly more annoyed where in the beginning he's just trying to ask questions and everybody just treats him like an asshole so he starts to become an asshole back and the entire time he stays true to himself like he doesn't violate his own morals or principles and even to the end is still trying to do what he thinks is right which is save this girl from this pagan group and i i I think i think we've become so accustomed to looking at that authority figure as being not someone that we relate to right or that we relate other things to that person. Whereas I think in the 70s, I mean, I don't who knows? He I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think that he even has bad intentions. I think he's just I don't think he has bad intentions at all. Consistently, you know. I think he's holier than thou is what I think. Yeah, I but that's only because he's just these people are like murdering children and fucking in the streets. And like to him. And to him, that's right. I, I get it. Like, I think at one time it made much more sense. I you mean, know? seriously, like, I've, I've known you for a long time. Like, I think that if you walked out of a bar and there was, like, 20 couples, like, fucking in front of you on the ground, I think you would be horrified and angry about, like, what was happening. You know? Like, I don't think you'd be happy about it. I, th- I don't know about that. I think I would walk to my car and and, and drive everybody home. <laughs> All twenty of the couples? No, not twenty of the couples. <laughs> the people that I drove to the bar. <laughs> um, but I, I I I think that is. Uh, um, I don't think that's true. No, I think it is. I've I think I think I might like. I think to to what? I've seen you react really poorly to public displays of affection. Oh right? yeah, I mean, look, I guess in that scenario, it's like. I think I've become less so recently. I, I, also think, think I think there's a difference in the past three years, honestly, like where it's like, I don't give a fuck what anybody does anymore. Yeah, maybe not. Like, but then also, like, what if we're, what, what if you're there, like, 
you just went to a funeral of somebody and you walk out and that's happened you know what i mean you'd probably oh, there's like, a sense of decorum yes i agree right this yeah. is completely unprofessional so sure. to this man he's investigating the murder of a young girl like he definitely you know thinks this girl is dead Mm -hmm. and is basically like what the fuck like none of you people care like none of you're all obstructing my investigation of this girl's murder like you're all pretending like this girl doesn't exist even though i have evidence that she exists i mean he might be he might be holier than thou, but they've also given him a reason you know giving him no, a reason to feel don't that disagree way. with that I, I i just think he's holier than now from the very get-go like um and kind of like immediately like looks down on some of the things that he sees and and i think it's a give and take i think it like it all feeds off each other like look they're they're mysterious and like you know like hiding knowledge and all those other things and they're kind of like you know they're kind of judging him as well but i mean um i mean i think it's a story of two like two different mindsets judging each other ultimately um and how that plays out at least for a while but i i, I still think that his his demeanor doesn't help anything like um necessarily even if it's justified like um and yeah they're all like the villains <laughs> they're like setting him up like as a plot to um but i but on the I, other side of that so i think in 2022 play... oh okay go ahead yeah on the uh, other side let, let me play devil's advocate to my own opinion mm-hmm. they're also just doing what they think is best to save their way of life and their culture i mean right. they're sure. they have the belief that the loss of this one man who really means nothing to any of them mm-hmm. because he represents a, ser- a system of like laws and morals that they don't hold hold true if it saves their entire you know community right yeah and i think i i i think i think i sympathize more with the the people that i see potentially being oppressed for their way of life than i do the oppressor but that's a 2022 mindset as opposed to you know a 1973 mindset like necessarily so right i mean and, I and it doesn't him. mean i don't feel sympathy for him. like at the end like i mean i think i feel like awful that like he's been duped and sacrificed you know it doesn't change that it's not like i'm like yeah like kill him like i mean it's horrifying it's absolutely horrifying but i think like in terms of like that debate um i i do think the the 50 years have made a difference um and and i think my multiple viewings of it have made a difference since i first seen it like in terms of like how i think of like that struggle philosophically yeah so here's the things i love about this movie Mm -hmm. Um, I really, I, I'm always going to love when somebody builds like an entire mythology into a movie and then doesn't beat you over the head with it. Just like yeah. gives you subtle hints about like what it is. It's like, you know, how he's looking in the books and he sees the thing about the different, like almost like avatars that these people dress up as and represent. And you've got the the hobby horse, they call it, right? And then the big brute guy is there with his 
you know, wearing like the horse costume and the clack of the mouth. And I, I love that repetition. Like anytime something happens, it's like punctuated by the like of him, like him pushing the hobby horse head forward <clears throat> and all the stuff with basically them playing like a who's on first game with him in terms of him asking questions like, Oh, I don't know. Right. Like, but you do know, cause it's, Oh, right. Well, I knew that, but I didn't know this part. Um, mm-hmm. I love the performances. Again, this is Christopher Lee as his best, which is, I don't know, bureaucratic evil, I guess, because he's, mm-hmm. you know, the Lord of the Lord of the Isle. Um, and is being so overly cooperative with, you know, the police officer that he's almost obstructing him in that way too. And I I love that performance. Um love Ingrid Pitt and Ingrid Pitt and Britt Eklund in this movie. Um, all the supporting cast members, like all the small characters that are just kind of background characters, whatever. I think they all do a great job. I love the way the movie looks, like the look of the, that kind of like seaside quaint village, but with the undercurrent of evil and the way they film like the alleys and the, you know, the dilapidated graveyard and the little like symbols that are all over the place, like the, the green man kind of being on the wall and all this pagan imagery that's all over the place. I just, it's a great movie from start to finish. I think that the first time you see it, there's definitely tension that gets built and you're really in a lot of ways taken aback by the ending of the movie, like by the fact that here's this character that you've come to view as maybe the protagonist, I guess, depending on your opinion and they kill him ultimately in the Mm -hmm. end. Um, And one of the most horrific ways you can die, which is being burned alive. Yes. Um, you know burned i guess in an effigy like alive so yeah i don't know i just i i love this movie a lot so can can you go and kind of kind of bring this together with the first two movies to this movie in terms of like how that like you know what what how you see this movie as progressing the ideas of the hammer movies and stuff like that yeah it's number one is taking one of the most recognizable actors from that era of filmmaking um and a guy that's in you know an actor that's in the first two movies that we talked about and it's placing him in a role it's it, putting him in a movie to kind of almost like place it very specifically in england so it feels like a british horror movie but then completely upending just every every aspect of what the traditional british horror film is you know it's not in a dank castle on the moors you know with an ancient curse and you know there's nothing traditional about the way this movie is presented or produced and yet is probably far more hard and it's definitely far more horrifying from like a like idealistic standpoint or a metaphysical standpoint Mm -hmm. than satanic rites or creeping flesh um right it's not filmed on sound stages, you know, which those movies are. It's not filmed in like backlots. It's not the traditional narrative of a horror movie. Like it's a very forward thinking and innovative take on, on the genre. And I think, you know, you can see over the years how influential it is and how much people, you know, really love it. And that's why 30 years later, or 40 years later, you know a movie like midsummer gets made which is an obvious ode 
to Wicker Man, and ain't nobody remaking the Creeping Flesh or the Satanic Rites of Dracula. Sure. I would guarantee that most people in the world don't even know what the Satanic Rites of Dracula are. Right. Um, they're basically uh, Asian woman dripping fake blood on a British lady's boobs. That's that's the Satanic Rites of Dracula, just so you know. Um, but just night and day. And the thing that, this is another reason why I love horror so much, even though The Wicker Man is such a more powerful and important movie than those two movies, it doesn't take anything away from the entertainment value of those two movies mm-hmm. from a horror standpoint. Like, they're still both, you know, good examples of that genre in that specific time period. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I just... um. I think the Wicker Man also continues this trend here too of the slow burn becoming a like a staple in some ways of horror more and more. Um, we've seen it so far in the seventies. Don't get me wrong. Like you know, with some of these movies, like things I like, like Let's Scare Jessica Death. Like you know, it's kind of like this like slow build towards like the horror. And but I think you're seeing it more and more. Um, so far right. like th- like as we're moving away from that traditional kind of more british horror mindset and um you know at least it looks different i don't know maybe it's still doing like a slow burn it's just i can't see it like necessarily but um because of my distaste for the period pieces but it, it definitely feels like from a f- like the actual filmmaking of these things like it's like there it's like it's moving slower like you know the the builds the pacing like you know like they're taking their time more with things um and letting just dripping like the the questions or the eeriness in like throughout right um it's like how long is it in this movie until you get like i think one of like the first things that like where in wicker man to like really puts me off is what is it the the bug that's like attached to like that's no like, it's the the beetle inside the, beetle. the um the school girl willow's, willow's desk yeah. yeah like that's the first thing where it's like it's like oh these people are fucked like in some ways like you know and and like what is that 25 minutes into the movie maybe 20 minutes into the movie oh, something like that. further than that further yeah um because that's the morning after he's already had the crazy like sex night with um right redeclan bouncing against his wall that's the next right. morning right right yeah so yeah it might be like 30 minutes into it yeah he's already so. put off by everything and like unnerved himself sure um, um again there's like really like and i notice more every time i see this movie and I've, I've probably seen this movie i don't know a dozen times maybe more um just very small things in the background where it's just the way people are regarding howie throughout the movie that you probably wouldn't notice the first time you see it and mm-hmm. i definitely like i caught a couple of them for the first time on this viewing um and you just think like man like the whole time everybody in this whole island knows what's in store for this man and he doesn't know and it's 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 pretty horrifying in that respect to think about like you know it's the same thing with Midsummer. Like you look at Midsummer, and and I know that you're not a huge fan of that movie, but you look at the way that people treat like that group of of kids in Midsummer, knowing what the end result for every single one of them is. It's um, I don't know. 
Yeah, I'll watch it the day that you make me watch it again because I actually am interested in watching Midsummer again, but I won't do it until you make me. Um, because I think it's a beautiful movie and I think it's a really impressive movie. I think it's like philosophically. Um, I I have problems with that movie and like how like what it's ultimately building to in the subtext, but um but as a as an actual movie, it's it's a solid movie. It's just like I, I shy away from it because of that reason yeah um so the episode that this was on originally was episode 70 top five Mm. horror movies featuring cults Mm. um which was i think a covid switch that we ended up having to do in some way because we ended up having to like i don't know what i remember something weird happened and we ended up having to like switch something up and you came up with this list like it was one of these things where it's like you just came up with an idea and the list like instantaneously to replace something and it's one of our first two i think i think it's the second it's it's bergman and then this are our first two covid casts um when we started going remote and uh the list on episode 70 and i would urge everyone to go listen to this because i remember this episode now um is rosemary's baby the wicker man the omen house of the devil and the invitation Mm. that's a good Uh, list it is um it's a damn good list um and i remember that podcast and yeah that's a good one um so if you never heard that one i would definitely go back and listen to that as well um where we first talked about the wicker man um but yeah, a lot of really important stuff this month anyway. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Um, even the Satanic Rites of Dracula. <laughs> like, there's some enjoyment there. You know, it's like my, what I dread the most. Do we, I mean, is there a lot of that? I mean, like, you know, I don't think there's a lot of that left, right? Like, it starts, like, everything starts veering away from that. Veering away from, oh, uh. There's like, one movie next month that's similar. It's it still is like, yeah, much more in view, like in the seventies mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, Seventy five. There's nothing like that. Right. Uh, Seventy six. There's one movie that's like that. Seventy mm-hmm. uh, seven. It's all. Yeah. God, 78, man. That's crazy ass shit in that year. 78 is going to be wild because do, do you know this? You know, we've done the top five horror films in 1978 before, right? And none of those movies were on it except for one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is, mm. is going to be hysterical. Um, <clears throat> I contain multitudes, buddy. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, We'll talk about that whole concept here in a couple of months. Um, in the 150th episode, getting this shit in. But <clears throat> yeah, um, next month, uh, a couple of movies that again are major, like um, in horror. And Every year has at least for the rest of the decade has at least one or two movies that I think are right. either important from a genre perspective or important just from an overall mm-hmm. um, 
the transcend i guess like horror right yeah 75 maybe not so that's hey. even then there's still one movie 75, on 75 is the year i'm least familiar with out of all of this like i don't i think it's like a i think 75 is the year i haven't seen any of those movies um so yeah i'm, I'm interested in that year check that out but yeah um i really enjoyed all the movies on the list so thank you um and uh any final thoughts yeah, i would just say it was a really enjoyable um list to do and to watch these movies i really enjoyed watching them all again do you have have you figured out the spin chagrin movie for this coming week Ghost what's today oh no 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 i i don't know i haven't really too too early yet no i usually get it by now but work was really busy and i've been distracted so i planned on sitting down tomorrow and figuring it out gotcha okay so all right i was like post-apocalyptic fun didn't we do that already (laughs) but i remember that the spin chagrin never ends no well december something um it will end, I guess. But all right. Thank all you, right. listen, everybody. Have yep, a good have week. A good we week. will be off next week, and then we will be back with um Frank's first fresh fry of the year. Oh, it's good movies. So excited. All right. All right, deuces. Bye.